Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Victor Hazan on the show today, the author of Italian Wine, which was published in 1982. Hello, sir. How are you? I am very well, Levy. Thank you. And how are you? Very nice to have you here today. So you were born in the 1920s in Italy. 1928. I was born in a town called Cesena, eight miles from the Adriatic. When you were a boy, your parents moved to New York. When I was 11, they moved to New York. This was on the eve of the Second World War. My father had a very flourishing business in Italy, but after the um, uh, anti-Jewish laws came out in Italy, he sensed that things were going to get a lot worse. And he just unloaded everything he had, loaded us up on a nice ship, the Rex, and brought us to New York as tourists. And what was your father employed in? Uh, he, he was a furrier. He had a, a remarkable eye for fur quality. He was very bright and also very honest. And this is unusual in, in his particular field. He had an extraordinary ability to learn language. He started working when he was a boy. I don't think he went past the third or fourth year of grammar school. But he could learn almost any language. He was born in Turkey, ran away from Turkey for one of the usual anti-Jewish reasons, and moved to Italy. He, his origin was Spanish. He was, belonged to that group of Spanish Jews who left Spain in 1492. He came to this country not speaking a single word of English, and he mastered English. And uh, in his field, the fur field, the most common language beside uh, uh, Yiddish, curiously, he never picked up Yiddish. And I think that may be a religious version because Sephardic and Ashkenazi somehow don't, uh, don't blend together. But he picked up Russian because so many furriers spoke Russian. And since he knew all these languages, he developed a retail business with uh, very wealthy people from all over the world. I remember we had extraordinary people coming from South America, especially during the Second World War. New York was the only place where they could come and spend money. And they spent a lot of it in my father's shop. You must have been somewhat successful because you went from being political refugees to you were a Harvard student, right? The company was very successful. He did extremely well. When he died, the complicated tax situation, a lot of the um, furs that he sold were sold to people who lived abroad. And there was a mechanism that was suggested to him to avoid paying sales tax because all of these people said, we don't want to pay sales tax, no matter how rich they were. They would stick at paying the 8% sales tax in New York. So said, we don't want to pay sales tax. I'm going to live here. He said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll deliver it to the plane. We'll get a signature from what was then called the stewardess and today's called the flight attendant. We'll get a signature and 
we're okay with the tax people and you're okay with us. This went on for a great many years. And a couple of years before he died, the tax authorities in New York clamped down on this practice. And they they hit a lot of very important companies like Bulgari, the jewelers. My father died but left me with the uh, with a suit from the tax people because, you know, death doesn't matter to them. As long as they do tax money, that is always a, a valid death. It bit very deeply in, into my father's estate. What was your childhood like? I read a very great deal because when I came, I didn't speak any English. And uh, I didn't have friends, you know. We landed here in June. They hired someone to teach me some English, and uh, I found that I could read uh, based on the notions that I was being taught. And so I read huge quantities of books. So you went to Harvard, and did you study art history at Harvard? or I was majoring in English Lit, but I became ill. I contracted tuberculosis, and I was in a sanatorium in Upper New York State for two years. Uh, one and a half years of those in absolute bed rest. Just couldn't move. Then streptomycin, the antibiotic, was developed. And streptomycin was found to be extremely effective on tuberculosis. I was given massive doses of it. So in six months, I was cured. And the unfortunate thing is, when you're given massive doses of antibiotics, it affects your hearing, and that's when I began to lose my hearing. I was still in my teens and became close to deaf. After that, I didn't feel like going back to school. I went to work for my father so I could have some decent pocket money. Uh, at one point, I found that my calling perhaps was in art, and not in producing art, but in writing and thinking about it. And um, I found that Maya Shapiro, Professor Maya Shapiro of Columbia, was also teaching at the new school on 12th Street in Manhattan. And so I enrolled in his courses and studied with him for about two years. But that didn't lead to an art writer's career. But he was kind of a hero to you in certain ways, like a personal hero, right? Yes, yes. I... I've always been drawn to people of principle who put uh, their principles above everything else, whatever the principle related to their work or their private life might be. And Maya Shapiro did not do anything to advance his reputation for the sake of his reputation. He was a genuine man and very kind to people who knew only a fraction of what he understood and very, very open to helping them make progress. He was a genuine, genuine person. So was my wife, Marcella, who broke no compromises, was rather hard on people sometimes because she told her like it was, but it led her to develop her style of cooking, which is extremely simple. It didn't look for trendy ingredients that altered the recipe, made it more talked about. And some of her recipes have only two or three ingredients. How did you meet Marcella Hassan? I met Marcella because at some point, going back in what I was saying before, I, I was discharged from the sanatorium. I didn't return to Harvard. I didn't make it as an art historian. I was working for my father, making a little bit of cash, and I was consumed by the desire to return to Italy. And when we left Italy, we left at the beginning of the war, and so there was no contact for many years. And uh, at the end of the war, I went to a TB sanatorium, and I was in a, penned up in a sanatorium for two years. All of that distance from my origins 
irritated me tremendously. I really felt the lack of a connection to what I was, where I came from, to the sound of the language that I'd been born into, to the taste of the food. I had become obsessive about the taste of the food. So I decided to go back, go back to Italy. And uh, when I went back to Italy, I gravitated to the town where I had been born. And from there, a relative said, well, it was summertime. He said, what are your plans for the summer? He said, I have no plans. He said, why? Why don't you come with us in the summertime, Italian families, pick up and, and go to the beach? Factories closed down, offices closed down, and the whole family moved over to the beach. We said, oh, well, why don't you come to the beach with us? So I did. The beach was in a town called Cesenatico. I was born in a town called Cesena. And in Cesenatico, uh, again, a member of that family said, uh, would you like to meet a very interesting and good-looking girl? To which it could only be one answer, right? <laughs> you know, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. So that's how I was introduced to Marcella, who was indeed very beautiful and very, very interesting. And we, we clicked immediately, and we became a couple very, very soon after that, and married within another year. Uh, we were together for 60 years before she died. It wasn't her goal originally to get into cooking, necessarily. That was not Marcella's goal. Marcella had graduated from university. She took two advanced degrees in the sciences. And her intention was to teach science at a fairly high level. However, we got married, and she couldn't teach uh, in the United States. Uh, she looked around for a suitable job and found a job as a research assistant. And she worked there for the first few years that we lived here until uh, our son was born. And uh, again, that bug that had bitten me a long time before, but was still living in me, of returning to Italy, of living the Italian life, of speaking the Italian language, of eating Italian food, consumed me. And I said, I can't. I can't spend the rest of my life in the fur business in New York. I'm going to go back to Italy, which startled my Marcella because she said, what are we going to do in Italy? You know, even if you get some kind of a job, we're not going to have very much to live on. Said, well, we'll figure it out when we get to it. And when we went back to Italy, I um, answered a, a newspaper ad looking for a uh, advertising copywriter. I had not been an advertising copywriter in the States, but I had written all the copy for my father's business. And I had been a very good friend of the owner of a small, very prestigious advertising agency. So I knew a little bit about the business. So I, um, I falsified things. I got a letter from him saying that he would recommend my talents in, in writing to anyone. And I, I answered that ad in the Corriere della Sera. I went to Milan and got a job with BBDNO. Very good job for a lot of money. More money than almost anybody who was not an industrialist was, was making. And it was stunned. Machalas and her family. From then I went on, I became involved in, in writing and producing television commercials, which made it possible for us to move to Rome, which was a city I much admired. I moved to Rome, taking a job as creative director of a commercial studio, which within about eight months uh, went bankrupt. After eight months, I had no job. It was difficult to get a similar job. I would have had to go back to Milan and get back into the advertising game there. I didn't want to do that. So we reversed direction. Instead of traveling to Italy, we traveled back to New York. When we were in New York, Marcella did not want to go back to research. She didn't feel she was going to 
really be rewarded by any any of that. And so she looked around. She we started eating out in Chinese restaurants. As a married woman, she had never cooked before. But once we were married and we depended on her cooking to survive, she discovered an extraordinary intuition for it. She just couldn't make a mistake. And she did things that had never she had never done before, and she did them right the first time. It was the act of genius. But she only did that for ourselves and our friends. When we came back to New York, she thought, well, I would like to know more about Chinese cooking and enrolled in a Chinese cooking course. The teacher of that course, after a year, left for a sabbatical in China. And the students in that course said, well, what are we going to do now? Marcella, what kind of cooking do you do? And she said, well, not normal cooking, Italian. She said, okay, you've got uh, six students for your Italian cooking classes. That's how it started, Levy. These little classes for six people. She did that for a year, always the same people were coming back, coming back, and she got fed up with them. And she said, can you find a way to make this permanent? And I wrote to Craig Claiborne. Apparently my letter was uh, moved him to get in touch with us. He came over. He had lunch with us. And on the basis of the lunch, he wrote a page about Marcella in the Times. And at that time, you know, Craig Claiborne was... Food Power, Mr. Food Power. And that launched her career and never stopped afterwards. Telephone never stopped ringing. Publisher came along and wanted her to do a book and so on. You, you, you know the story well from then on. And you collaborated with her on several books. Uh, yes, because Marcella did not write in English. She knew enough English to talk to students, but she couldn't sit down and write a page in English. So I could write quite well. I'd been doing advertising writing, and that's very challenging. And uh, commercial scripts. So switching to presenting a recipe came natural to me, just as cooking came natural to Marcella. And that's how the, the joint career got underway. It's a career that at one point, moved us to open a cooking school in Italy. This was the first cooking school for foreigners in Italy. As you probably know, there are hundreds of them now. But this was the first one. I, uh, we went to Italy, and I, I had to choose the wines that were going to be served with her cooking and her dishes. And I didn't know hardly anything about Italian wine. I, I didn't know too much more about wine in general, although I had already started collecting, you know, wine which happened to be French. But I, uh, I began to look around for Italian wine. I chose several wines for all of her dishes, and our editor from New York, Judith Jones, who had come to see what these classes were like, saw the work that I had done on wine, and that was when she said, Victor, we really need a book on Italian wine. Will you please write one? And that was 1978. 1978. And then for the next three years, I traveled and, and wrote what became my book on Italian wine called Italian Wine. And you had been introduced to wine back in college. Oh, yes, yes. But, you know, I had to stop very soon. Because the moment I was shipped off to sanatorium, that was the end of wine for two years. So it wasn't done like today. Today, somebody gets interested in wine, and before you know it, they know 2,000 producers and have read every book on the subject and have a cellar. You know, at that time, you go to a wine shop and, uh, and you talk to the man, and you, know, you buy two bottles or three bottles, maybe one for that evening and a couple for the weekend, that's, that's the way you began knowing about wine. Especially if you're living in New York and you're not a, in a wine family, in, a, in an extremely sophisticated gastronomic family. Mine wasn't one. So it was, 
it was a very tentative entry into the pleasures of wine. It definitely was a pleasure. I experienced the pleasure. I found that I could detect differences between one wine and another, but I didn't think that was going to be my expertise. You know, this was just, just the way one develops other interests, uh, uh, design, clothes, and things like that. Not necessarily because one is going to start a fashion house or uh, an industrial design place, but because, you know, you're interested. I was interested in uh, what wine did for me. And when uh, the opportunity to write a book about it, I was startled by the offer. I said, well, that's However, I said, you know, I don't know very much, and the only way I'm going to learn is to travel the country. I'm going to find out the people I have to talk to, and this is going to take time. She said, it doesn't matter how long it takes. She had a great deal of confidence in me. She said, as long as you feel confident that you're doing a good book, we'll wait for you to write it. And so they waited until 1981, signed the contract in 78, 1981. I delivered a manuscript, and it was published in 1982. And the first printing sold out very quickly, uh, well, relatively quickly. By 1984, there was a second printing, but that was it. You know. The market for Italian wine books had quickly been absorbed by then. But it was interesting, you know, up to then, the Italy I knew was Bologna, where I'd gone to my first five years of school, Cesena, where I'd been born, Cesenatico, where I'd met Marcello, and that was it, very limited. And from then on, I, I just started traveling. I discovered Piedmont. I discovered Italy from north to south. It was a way for you to do that, really, yes. through wine, to discover the rest of Italy. Right. And uh, I think I'm pretty good at research, so I didn't just go someplace and ask, who makes wine, you know, I tried to find out who was it. And uh, I don't know if the situation has changed too much. You probably know this better than I do. But then uh, wine producers didn't have tasting rooms and they didn't admit the public to tasting. However, there's a magic word in Italy. That word is giornalista, journalist. If you present yourself as somebody writing about someone, every door is open to you. Everybody wants the publicity. So I wrote a little letter of presentation for myself, said what I was doing, whom I was doing the book for, said this is one of the great publishing houses in America. And so this producer said, oh, this man is going to talk about us in America. Uh, more than welcome. Marcella came with me many of the times, so she picked up a lot about regional recipes that she otherwise would not have known very much about. And this is, this is where our, our life and career began. But you made wine at one point with a farmer, right? Yes, but that was even before I was married. But I, made, I made wine because I'd gone back to live in Italy I hadn't gotten married yet, but I, when Shelley and I were a couple then, I wanted to live in Tuscany. And I found a very inexpensive lodging in a magnificent but derelict villa in the hills of Tuscany. The owners were really completely down and uh, had cut up the villa into rental apartments. But they kept some of the land for agricultural products, because they had to have wine, they had to have oil, they weren't going to go to the store and buy any of this, they produced it. And living there, the husband of this family's housekeeper, he was the one making the wine. He was the contadino, the peasant farmer. And uh, I was interested in what he was doing. So I went with him, I helped him with the harvest. We brought the, uh, the grapes to the yard in front of the house and put them in a great big wooden container and, and climbed into it and stomped the grapes with our feet. It was uh, Sangiovese. It was only pure Sangiovese because that's all they had on their vines. 
It was beautiful. We crushed it with our feet. He fermented it in a large open uh, tank. He bottled it in what is called a demijana, which uh, was a uh, 50-liter glass container, and it was fresh, perfumed, lively, easy quaffing, but good. And that, that was my first experience in wine. And from then on, this lay at the back of my mind as the ideal of wine, what you want to sit down and you're eating. Because it wasn't the kind of wine that... People have wine tastings now. And this is something, Levy, that uh, I've never accepted. People have cheese and wine tasting. They enter a room. There are maybe a dozen bottles of something. They're given a glass. They put some wine in that glass. And they either swallow it or spit it. Then they put some more wine. And that is a wine tasting. That's not drinking wine. To me, drinking wine was sitting at a table, having a very good first course, a very good second course, maybe some cheese, and all along, a very drinkable, enjoyable wine experience. And I, I somehow wish that we could embrace that again, but I don't know if that will ever be possible because we've now made of a simple substance a very sophisticated and sometimes very expensive substance. I thought your section on pairing food with wine in the Italian wine book was very sensible and very thoughtful. It's a short segment there in the chapter in the back, but there's some good thoughts in there. One of the things you said is that a lot of small producers, they learn to pair food and wine by drinking their own wine with a range of different foods Correct. because that's what they have. They have their wine and that's their life is to have one wine with a lot of different foods and to Correct. find out in that way. And in that way you understand a lot about the character of wine. If you get hung up in uh, wine and food affinities, which again has become one of those dogmas that I think are deleterious in understanding wine, if you get hung up on that, is it possible that you have to have one wine with tagliatelle with Bolognese meat sauce and a different wine with chicken cacciatore and then a different wine again with the cheese and possibly a different wine again if you're having dessert. I mean, that's, that's not natural living. What, uh, you know, what drew me to Italy was the natural rhythm of living, unpretentious, non-trendy, and getting to the substance of things, to the reality of pleasure. The fact is, however, one must be fair. When I made that wine, that was, as I said before, I was married. In between the time of that peasant farmer in Tuscany and the time when we came back to live in America, I had an experience of Italian wine that wasn't always enjoyable. Chianti was a light-colored mess. You know, it wasn't the real wine, even. And uh, people were just making any kind of, of wine. The, uh, they weren't worried about yields. And there was a, a real necessity for some kind of discipline of understanding the techniques that extracted the quality from wine. Of course, in the course of time, this was pushed to extremes that, well, maybe they're not extremes. This is the way people want to live today. But I was drawn to the hope that having experienced delicious wines in Italy, that delicious wines would be more common. They weren't that common. In Piedmont, when I eventually got to Piedmont, I found that people in Piedmont, they call themselves Invicatore Divino, which meant ages. Of wine, they aged wine. Oh, I see. What does that mean? I mean, they made the wine from Nebbiolo, they put it into a 25 year old wooden barrel, and when they had a call for maybe a few cases of wine from that vintage, they'd go to the barrel and bottle a few cases of wine. Maybe two years later, they bottle another case or two. 
And this could go on for 10 years. You could buy the, the same vintage with dramatic different qualities. It was good when it was fresh and young and honest. It was terrible when it had gone through that period and was acid, was vinegar. People were drinking vinegary wines thinking that's what the wine should be like. Oh, that. And so that is why, uh, as I was writing my book, I became close to many people who were, who were working on quality. You know, the Antinoris and, and the Gaias and the, and the Maslow Berardinos and the Ehrman. I recognized their, their search for quality, and I thought, this was good. They have good raw material, and we're going to show the world what good grapes grown in Italy can produce. You said some key names in there because you met Antonio Master Berardino, right? Yes, yes. That was one of the first persons I met in the South, Antonio Master Berardino. I liked him very much. He was all of a piece. Which I don't know whether that's an, an idiomatic expression in English, but it is one in Italian, tutto d'un pezzo. You know, there were no, no gaps. He introduced me to uh, this wonderful red wine made from this ancient grey Paglianico in a particular territory where the wine was called Taurasi. Antonio, had he was a chemist, actually, by training. He had tremendous belief in the technology allied to a respect for the character of a wine. And he, he was frustrated by the fact that, first of all, he was producing a world-class red wine in a non-world-class area, which was Naples. Who would go to Naples to buy a great red wine? But he was making great red wine, and he said, let me show you what a great red wine grown on these hills can be like. And one year, he took uh, three of his properties, and he separated the yields from those vineyards, and he bottled three different bottlings of the same vintage of Alianico uh, with the vineyard name on it. It was 1968. And uh, eventually I learned that this one of the great treasures of Italian winemaking. He never did it again. He began to acquire some renown, although I think even today, wine geeks who are going to Italian wine, know that Terrazzi and other wines from Alianico can be excellent wines. But it's still, you know, it's not Domaine de Romane Conti, you know. It's, that is another, another world, another planet. And this is frustrating to people who want to be in that other planet and can't be. And so Antonio Berardino stopped vinifying separate vineyards. But he did make wonderful wine, and I think he did a great deal for the winemaking image of the South. Eventually, things didn't go well with the family. He and his brother, who were partners, had a falling out, and uh, I didn't really continue to follow him that well. I was sad when he died, because he was one of my first heroes. Renato Ratti was a hero of yours as well, right? Not just my hero, but my mentor. Renato Ratti was the head of the Enological Institute in Alba, and he had a wine estate of his own. And this was the area where the greatest of the Italian red grapes is grown, Nebbiolo, where the first Italian red wine to be put into a glass bottle with a, with a vineyard name was produced. And Renato Ratti was proud of his heritage, but he also was a brilliant and honest man who realized that what other people were doing was bad. They were not producing good wine, and they had all the raw material to produce very great wine. So he, he took me around, introduced me to some of the smaller producers who were working in a new way, in a cleaner way, with more respect for the wine character. And uh, he was making his own wine that way, too. 
you know, cleaner barrels, no extended aging in, in antique, moldy, Slavonian oak barrels, and so on. But unfortunately, he died of cancer very young. And the people who picked up after him, you know, they're good too. I hate to speak badly of him. I'm not speaking badly. It's just a, a difference of opinion. But people like Altare, for example, they make excellent wine, but it isn't really, really Barolo. It's a modern, international, chic wine made in an extraordinary territory with a wonderful grape by somebody who knows how to make wine. Now, Altare was a, a terrorist. When Altare's father made wine, they had a vineyard, and Altare uh, hated those old barrels that his father kept putting wine into. And one day, he took a chainsaw, and he went into the cellar, and he cut them all up. That was his character. And his wine is, you know, his wine is excellent, but it isn't what you go to experience Barolo. You experience a well-made wine. And I think this is where the paths begin to diverge. And this is why perhaps in my very old age, I've abandoned some of the Italian wines that I uh, was very much in love with, and I've gravitated to drinking wines made in Burgundy and in the Cote d'Or. And I've also begun to drink white wines for a long time. I didn't drink white wine. And I, when I was asked to do another wine book, I uh, asked my editor, could I call it The Color of Wine is Red? And he said, sure, sure, you're very good. Wonderful editor, Jonathan Galassio. And uh, I'd written some chapters of it that he read, he liked. And, uh, but I wasn't drinking white wine. Now I've discovered white wines from Alsace and from Austria. And I love them, perhaps because I'm old. And these wines taste of youth and, and freshness, you know, a sort of December-May marriage of, of sorts. Ratti had made vineyard maps. Did he take you around and show you the different vineyards? He did. He showed me the different vineyards. He showed me the names. He had this wonderful map. And in fact, when I wrote my book, I followed his map. And I went one step further. His map was a geographical map. It showed the localities, and it pinpointed where the, the great vineyards were. I went to the uh, Geographic Institute of the Italian Army, which uh, had published topographical maps showing elevations of every single inch on the Italian territory. And I went with the geographical maps, and I, I was able to buy topographical maps of the various areas in, in, in the Lange, in Piedmont, and I found a... Uh, a young woman cartographer who made elevations, physical elevations. She built it up with, with fine cardboard, and she copied the topographical information on the army map and transformed it into a physical elevation on a sheet. And then that was photographed, and... I'm rather proud of those were in my first book. Nobody had ever done anything like that before. And I did something also different when it came to, to Tuscany. Everybody, you know, was talking about Tuscany and Chianti, and they began to talk about Super Tuscan. But there are differences in the different townships. I wanted to see if I was able to get people to become aware of townships in Tuscany, because they're very, they can be very important. And so I pointed those out. It's a unique feature of the book. Yes. It looks different than other. Yes. I enjoyed doing that work, and I was perfectly willing to record the changes in Italian winemaking. But then, as a, you know, I started traveling again, as I had originally. And, of course, I knew many more people. And many more people knew me, so I had easy entry everywhere. And uh, 
I tasted a lot of wine, and uh, time after time, I said to myself, well, I don't recognize this. I don't recognize where it comes from. It doesn't trigger my memory about anything I've ever had in this place before. It's a perfectly good wine, perfectly well made. If you didn't put down where it is made and you just cover the, uh, the bottle, you know, people who understand wine could drink it, enjoy it, appreciate it, but they would not be informed. The identity, that's, that's, what, uh, maybe that's what matters to me, is identity. And I find that a lot of the wine being made today doesn't really have a, a clear, explicit identity. Well, you were on that knife edge, right? You were there in the late 70s and 80s, and you were watching a modern style of what yeah. you're referring to as kind of an international style of wine take hold in Italy. Right. At the same time that the older, more rustic wines, which sometimes had soul and sometimes were faulty, uh, but there were some good ones that had soul, and there were some that were faulty and were less appealing, but those were still around. You were yeah. still seeing those at the same time that this kind of modern phenomenon was taking hold. So you were kind of watching it happen yes. over that three-year period that you wrote that book. Yes, correct. And at the same time, you had gone back to Italy for identity reasons. You wanted to connect with something you'd been taken away from. And so I think that that identity issue, which is all throughout Italy even today, really resonated with you. You need extraordinary dedication to preserve identity because the temptation is image. Image and identity are not the same thing. And the temptation, image is easier to sell than identity. And there are Italian, Italian winemakers who are dedicated to identity and uh, appreciate what they're doing. But image has shoved identity aside. And that is true of so many things, not only wine we know in our own society, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but we know in our own society that what image and reality, how different those can be and how much easier it is to advance some image, whether it is it corresponds or not. You know, uh, even the packaging, uh, you know, a lot of Italian producers are getting into these very Heavy bottles. You have to pick them up with two hands. And what does that mean? Oh, this is this is really something special. Look at look at that bottle. It must have been hand blown. It would have been okay to have a either a Bordeaux shape or a burgundy shape or a a wine shape. That's all a, a wine needs. But your feeling is that they're trying to overcompensate for an inferiority complex. Exactly. It's the paradox because basically they have produced the best in everything. In the Western world, at least, the influence of, uh, of Italian creativity in everything from road building to architecture to fabrics to food to automobile design, the Italian has been at the very top. They've been the guide. They've been copied by everybody else. And Italian grapes, if they're grown with a great deal of care and attention, are exceptional because when you're in Italy and you eat Italian food, you eat a green bean that's spectacular. It is crisp, it is tasty, it tastes really tastes of a vegetable. You eat green beans in this country, they're neutral. They may look okay. They may be underdogs because that's the only way they can call attention to themselves, but they're neutral. Italian products have a strong natural identity to them, and unfortunately, the Italian psyche, uh, in clothes, for example, now we recognize that Italians are probably the best dressed and have made some of the best fabrics and uh, have some of the best tailors in the world. But for a very long time in Italy, men's fashion especially had to be English. The names were English. The names of stores were English. You bought something designed, made in Italy by an Italian workshop, and you looked at the label, 
it had an English name on it. And this sense of reaching for a recognition through means other than a realization of your real worth, by reaching for recognition through image rather than through your own identity, has affected Italian production in many fields. You think that some Italian wine producers were sort of comparing themselves to the French unfavorably and thinking that they didn't have the same image that the French had, and they kind of overcompensated for that. Yes, very much so, especially in Piedmont. Piedmontese producers kept going to Burgundy every single year and tasting the wines in Burgundy, and they'd come back and say, oh, we can make wine like that. We can make wine like that, but how do we get people to accept it? That lay at the basis of um, Angelo Gaia taking ancestral vineyards in his area of Piedmont, which is the most hallowed vineyard land in Italy, and had always in history been dedicated to its local grapes, and ripping out the local vines and putting in Cabernet Sauvignon, and Chardonnay, and, uh, you know, I became very good friends with Angelo, even though I disagreed with some of the things he was doing. But I, I respected the man, his intelligence and his, his dedication, and I, I said, Angelo, how could you do that? And he said, because if I can make a Cabernet and bring my bottle of Cabernet to a tasting table in Germany, or in California, and put it down and have people taste it and say, whoo, this is a good wine. I have, I put my footprint in the international market, and the market is what mattered. That's where the money was. You know, how much wine can you sell in Italy at a high price? Right? And I don't know, can you fault him? I do fault him, but he first fell in love with Burgundy, and then one day a group of them went to California and they fell in love with the California Barrique style. And they came back and they said, you know, like Altara taking the chainsaw and cutting down all the old Slavonian oak barrels. That's what we need to have. We have to have a Barrique. And then we will get that flavor, that aroma that people will recognize as the aroma and flavor of a quality wine. They may recognize it as an aroma and flavor of a quality wine, but they don't recognize it as an Italian wine. It's just an indeterminate wine that seems tastes good. And that's the part that bothers you, is that it, you can't locate the place yeah. behind it. It saddens me. You know, I think it'd be pretentious to say it bothers me because I'm not in, in that business and I didn't create it. I may have helped advance it a little bit. Uh, it saddens me. It saddens you when, in other circumstances, you see someone not stepping into the place that he is entitled to by birth, you know, by natural qualities, wanting to be something else, something that he is not, you know, ignoring the, the Shakespeare dictum, to thine own self be true, Italian wine producers were not true to their own selves. They were true to the image that they had discovered other countries had created. And you were kind of saddened by that to the extent that you were going to write a second book on I Italian was, wine. I was. And you decided not to do that because you were kind of disenchanted with what was happening. Exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't write it because if I had had to write it, I would have had to say things that were disagreeable. And I didn't want to publicize uh, my feelings about it. Faris Giroux was willing to publish my book. They had seen a couple of chapters in it. But I thought, no, this is stabbing in the back people you, at whose table you've eaten, whose wine you've drunk, who sent you truffles for Christmas. And you can't do that. And I think your thinking on this issue was a little ahead of your time. Because those kind of sentiments that you're saying about internationalized wine are, are sentiments that I hear frequently now, but I think were very not common, especially in the 90s, but I imagine in the 80s either. Well, I, I, I was trying to be 
honest with myself. What I tasted is what I tasted, and uh, I had to describe it. I wasn't trying to uh, write a, a publicity flyer for uh, the Italian wine industry or any industry. In the end, I thought, well, I'm not really that important. I'm just an individual who has formed these ideas on the basis of considerable traveling and, and practice, but I'm one little old man. Uh, why should I interfere in somebody else's business? I, mean, I guess I'm not really, I don't have the, the political soul. I don't want to rabble-rouse anyone. But I, when I was asked to do these things, I expressed my feelings about them, and I realized there were, there were feelings I was not going to be comfortable in publicizing. And that's why I withdrew from writing about, about wine. It's interesting to me, because what it sounds like is that you had done commercial writing before, kind of like advertising work. Yes. And you liked this subject so much, this food and wine subject, that you refused to do commercial writing about that subject because it was closer to you. And you saw yourself as a writer-writer. Yes, it is true. It's fair. It's also, you know, it's also the united career with my wife because Marcella was herself uncompromising about her food, about her recipes. And uh, she wouldn't do something because this was going to be the the big new ingredient or the big new dish. She did it because this is what she believed the dish wanted to be. And of course, she was this all the way through in life. My child was personally modest. She used practically no makeup. In Italy, if you've uh, achieved a university degree, you're called dottore. Marcella would never allow anybody to call her dottoressa. She was shy even about when the president of Italy knighted her about letting people know that she was cavaliere. She said, oh, man, that's not me. Her stance on being uncompromising kind of affected your own decision-making not to write that second book. Is that fair? Right. Yes. I couldn't uh, have lived a whole life with a person like Marcella and sat down and write a book of publicity about it. It's very easy to write a, a book of publicity about wine, of puffery, you know? Very. And I am even ashamed of, of some things I have written, but I, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to be an honest man. Victor Hazan wrote the book Italian Wine in 1982, and hopefully he'll write that second book someday soon. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. It was a pleasure. Victor Hazan of the book Italian Wine, and also worked on many projects with his wife, both in the cooking schools and her cookbooks as well. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.